We're going to need this today. And I almost left it down on the front row. That would not have gone well at all. I invite you to take your copy of God's Word with me and mine and turn in it to John chapter 14 as we conclude our time in this wonderful chapter together here this morning. And before we get going, I I do just want to make a very brief mention of the fact that our very own Caleb Garrett was engaged to be married last night, from what I've heard. I see the Garrett clan over here. Congratulations, guys. That's wonderful. Is Caleb here today? No? Okay. Well, there's good reason for that. But we are so happy for you. Kevin's face, Kevin, I've never seen you smile quite that big before. That's... That's wonderful. We're so excited to see what God is going to do in starting up a new family unit. Congratulations, guys. We, we love you. We love Caleb. It's been a joy to see him. I know many, for many of you, grow up here at this church, and now for him to take this next step is just wonderful. It's a joy to see. So congratulations. John chapter 14. You know, this morning I want us to start off with just a little bit of pastoral perspective. I know that Many of you have been asking questions about the wars both in Ukraine and in Israel and the resulting, we could call it, geopolitical instability that is rippling through our world right now. One of you even went so far as to ask me, you know, these wars and rumors of wars, they're, they're really kind of scary, aren't they? And you know, that's a sentiment and a statement that I I certainly do understand because, let's be honest, it is. We, We look at our world as people who crave stability and peace and safety, and we find that our world knows nothing of these things, and it seems to be getting worse by the day, and so it's a natural response for our human hearts to look at that instability and all of that chaos and confusion and to be tempted to whisper to ourselves this question. Is God's plan really on track? How can this be plan A? And to answer that quiet question, you don't need my perspective You need Jesus' perspective. So let me give that to you. You see, in Matthew chapter 24, a text that is often misinterpreted, Jesus, he spoke of the wars and the rumors of war that were going to rack humanity between his first and second comings. But see, when Jesus talked about these wars, his intention for us was to know that God's plan is the only solution to these problems. You see, the fact that there are wars, the fact that there are new wars, the fact that we're in an age defined by wars and dissension and chaos, that should not, as believers, frighten us. Because Jesus said, these things are coming. I am going to leave, and the age that will define the time between I leave and the time that I return will be characterized by wars and rumors of war. And you and I, we look back over the last 2,000 years of human history, and what do we find? We find that that prophecy has been fulfilled very specifically. Wars and rumors of war having characterized the two millennia since Jesus was last here. So war, the fact that we see wars happening around the world and threatening our own peace, that's not a sign 
that the end has now arrived. No, it's a reminder, friends, that the end, it is coming. And in that day, when it does come, Jesus will be victorious. So whenever we hear rumors of a new conflict somewhere in the world, we should remember the universal human need that has led to such a conflict. The fact that we are fallen beings who are foolish, bound up, foolishness bound up within our hearts, both as individuals apart from Jesus and as nations apart from his governance. And so there can be no peace that will define this age. Uh, of course, we desire it, but until he, as the Prince of Peace, returns to establish it, it will be fleeting from us. And so when we hear these things, yes, they make us nervous because we love our comfort. But friends, we must be people as followers and lovers of Jesus Christ who now turn our eyes to him, knowing that he is our only source of hope. And to quote for you another verse from Jesus that comes straight out of our text here today in John 14, Jesus says the following to us. My peace I give to you if you love me and know me. Not only as the world gives do I give to you. They don't know peace as we're going to find. But he says I do and I give it to you. So let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. And I think we need to remember that as we look at our own day. Because, my friends, it's, it's really important for us to notice that the statement that I just read to you from Jesus about him offering peace to us and us having no need to be afraid was made on a day when things seemed for all the world to have come completely unglued. See, Jesus had just finished telling his men here in that upper room in chapter 13 and here all through chapter 14 that not only was he going to be leaving them, but on the very next morning, he was going to be killed. And so from where the disciples sat, it looked for all the world like Jesus' plan A to bring the kingdom had just run full tilt straight into a buzzsaw. And so you can understand why the disciples might have been asking the very same question that I just vocalized for you that we may be tempted to ask. See, they were asking the question, what has happened that your plans have come so completely off track? And Jesus' answer to them is one that they needed to understand. But my friends, it is also one that you and I, we need to understand here in our own day. Because far from coming off track, no, you see, the, the plan of Jesus, it has always been the plan. It is plan A. And for these men there in that text, it was just on that day coming together. You see, this morning, we're, we're going to see very clearly the grand display of the superiority of Jesus' plan over the plan that the disciples wanted. And as we see the superiority of Jesus' plan, we will be able to rest our heads on the pillow of God's sovereignty, knowing that His plan, it is not only perfect, but despite what we see around us, it is right on track, wars and rumors of war or not. See, before our very eyes, just like before their very eyes, His plan was working. After all, who doesn't love it when a plan comes together. I've been waiting a while to say that. Those of you who are fans of 1980s television will understand the reference. 
So let's see what it means when it comes to Jesus' plan, that he has a superior plan. We're going to begin this morning by looking at a very bold question here in the text, because one of the disciples just comes out and asks it, how exactly is this plan that you're articulating better for us? How is this a good plan? In verse 22, you can see it there. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Now, from where we sit, the question sounds perhaps a little obtuse. What does that mean? Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not the world? And so we need to dig in and make sure we understand exactly what the disciple is asking here. You see, since the middle of chapter 13, Jesus has been trying to explain God's plan to men who had no capacity to understand it. Because why? They didn't have the Spirit, and so their eyes had not been opened. And how many times in this chapter have we wanted to say to the disciples, would you just shut up and listen to Jesus? Because he's going to answer all your questions. You know, you may have heard the old kindergarten teacher saying, children, there are no bad questions, only bad answers. But then you grow up and you learn that that is actually not at all true. (laughs) There are really bad questions. There are downright stupid questions. And we've seen a number of them here in this text. Let me review for us because we've seen really bad questions and we've also seen profoundly perfect answers. And so for the sake of context here this morning, let's review. See, question number one, you'll remember, the Apostle Peter asks, where are you going and why can't I come? And Jesus says, because, Peter, I'm going to the cross and you're not qualified to come with me. And to do there at that place what I must do for you. It's better for you if I go. Question number two. Thomas now swings into action and he says, you'll recall, we don't know where you're going. So how can we possibly know the way? And Jesus says, as I've already told you, Thomas, I am the way to the Father. Believe in me as you believe in him. That's the answer. So then Philip chimes in. And he says, if we can summarize, well, can you show us the Father, Jesus? Because if you can, that would be good enough for me. And Jesus responds by saying to Philip, Philip, I I already have. What do you think I've been doing for the past three years? To see me is to see the Father, and as I go, I'll send the Spirit, and He will reveal the Father to you. You will see Him from now on, Philip. You've seen the Father, you know Him, because you've seen and you know me. Which now leads us down to the fourth and final question by a man whom we're told was named Judas, not Iscariot. Not to be confused with the the traitor Judas who had already walked out of the room by this point. Now elsewhere in the Gospels, this man goes by the name Thaddeus and we really don't know much about him at all. He's one of those disciples on whom biographical information is really very scarce. But what we do know of him is this question right here. Question number four, and let me tell you, it's a doozy. Look there with me at verse 22. Now, there is a whole train of history that is stretching out behind the engine of this question. Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? You can see the question there. And before we get into the meat of it, let's briefly make sure that we're reading the question correctly. See, the best translation of this question here is not, how will you manifest yourself? It's really not a how question. The most literal reading here is, What has happened that you are going to reveal yourself to us and not to the world? And some of your Bibles might reflect that translation. 
Let me explain to you why that is important. See, Thaddeus here, Judas, not Iscariot, he's not inquiring about a fine point of theology. How are you going to reveal yourself to us but not to them? That's not his question. He's actually asking this question. What has happened to plan A? What has caused you to change plans from the one where everybody sees you to the one where now only we see you? Because this new plan, the one where you, Jesus, you know, die, from where I sit, it's nowhere near as good as plan A. And plan A, that's the one that I signed up for. What has happened that has caused you to switch plans? See, that is the right way to understand this question. That's the engine driving the question. And now that we understand that, let's consider the train of it that stretches down the tracks of the entire Old Testament. You see, in the Old Testament, God had promised His people that His kingdom was going to come in great power and glory, that Messiah would come and rule and reign, bringing permanent peace to His people, ruling in justice and destroying the enemies of Israel. That was the plan that the disciples had signed up for. But they had no awareness that there would be not one, but two comings of the Messiah. In the first coming, it was going to be all about the sacrifice of the Messiah for sin, to be the perfect fulfillment of God's expectations for righteousness and justice, and the establishment of a spiritual kingdom. And then in the second coming, which has yet to occur, it would be all about the crowning of Messiah as king and the fulfillment of a physical kingdom. But they have no awareness of that distinction between first and second coming. And so, as a result, from where they sit, Jesus' words in this chapter that he was going to leave and just simply give them the Spirit was a clear deviation from what they thought plan A was. And so their question here is clear. Wait, what? We don't want plan B. We don't want the one where you leave and reveal yourself to us through the Spirit alone. We want plan A where you judge the world and get up on your throne already. See, it's a bold question here in the text, all right? But it's a question that reveals a total misunderstanding of what God was actually up to and the nature of what his plan was really all about. And Jesus is going to set the record very straight here with a comprehensive answer, an answer that shows us the superiority of his plan that was very much on track. And so let's look at that plan because it was a plan that was going to be applied not just to these men, but it is now a plan that has been applied to you and to me as well. It is the plan of God that gives us confidence to rest and trust in Jesus, knowing that His way is always better than our way. See, not only was His plan on track, but it was a game-changing kind of plan. All chapter long, we've been looking at what it means for Jesus to be the way, the truth, and the life. But now in these final verses, he pulls all of those themes together to demonstrate that he's not just the way, truth, and life, but now he's going to go on to inform us that he is a better way. He is a deeper truth, and he is a superior life. That's the plan that Jesus is going to lay out in totality here in these coming verses. So let's just break each one of those down one at a time. Let's start by looking at the better way that is given to us there in verses 23 to 24. Now, we've already talked about what it means to love Christ and to keep his word. We've already talked over the course of chapter 14 that the only way you can do that is if you have the presence of God's spirit resident within you. 
enabling you to love and obey Jesus Christ. We've already talked about the reality that sheer willpower wasn't going to cut it. It certainly didn't for Peter, and if it didn't work for him, it ain't going to work for you either. And Jesus says, look, if you do love me, then you'll obey me. But if you don't love me, if you don't have the Spirit, you won't love me, nor will you obey me. It's as simple as that. And Jesus goes on here to re-explain both of those truths, positively and negatively in 23 and 24. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words, and the word that you heard is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. That's ground that Jesus has already covered that we've talked about extensively in chapter 14 already. But here is the element that makes this new plan a better way. You see, Jesus is uttering these words in response to a question of, how is this a better way, Jesus? How is this a better plan, Jesus? And so we need to zero our attention in on the new information that Jesus gives here in these verses. See, he's not just restating something he's already said. No, he goes on to explain, here's precisely how what I'm going to do is going to be a better way. You ready? We will come to that one, the one who believes, has the Spirit, knows the love of God, loves me and keeps my word. We will come to that one, him, and we will make our home with him. That, my friends, is a better way. Now, let me explain to you exactly why it's a better way. Because you see, now, if you've put your faith in Christ and you have received his Spirit, well then... You've got the fullness of the Father and the Son and the Spirit all taken up, their, their residency within you, all of them together. And, and here's the significance of this. When you, when you believe in the work of Christ and receive His Spirit, you are, you are now indwelt by the fullness of God's presence. It's not as though you've just got the Spirit and someday you're going to get around to meeting Jesus and His Father when you get into heaven. That's not what's happening here. No, the Father, the Spirit, and the Son, as we've already learned in John 14, are all of the same essence. And so to have one of them is to have the fullness of all of them. And that's the reason why the New Testament uses the language of all three members of the Trinity being present in the life of the believer. Now, there are many passages that we could go to to demonstrate this and do not have time to get into them all this morning. But let me just give you one that talks about all three being in your life at once. Ephesians chapter 3 verse 16 says the following. It's according to the riches of the Father's glory that he grants you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. The spirit is present. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, the Son is present, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God, the Father is present. You see, the fullness of God's presence now brought to you. The substance of what you and I have in Christ and through His Spirit, it is better. But that's not all. See, they make their dwelling place now in you. And, and here's how that is better. See, instead of you now running around trying to make your way to the fullness of God, no, now He comes to you and makes His way to you. That's a better way, friends. 
That's so far superior to the old way when in order to access the the presence of God, you had to go to a tabernacle first and then later a temple and, and come to the presence of the Lord on special days at special occasions through special ceremonies, but only after special forms of of purification. See, under the old covenant, by following the law, you had to make your way to where God was. But now, in the new covenant, God has made his way to you. That's better. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16 states it very clearly this way. Do you not know that you are a temple of God and that God's spirit now dwells within you? See, if you've trusted Christ and you have his spirit, you are now the temple of God. The Father, Son, and Spirit haven't taken up their place inside of you. You don't go to them. No, in Christ and through His Spirit, they have come to you. And my friends, the the impact of that truth is just very profound. It explains an awful lot about the process of sanctification. See, the reason why there is such an urgency to the Spirit's work now in changing you is because of the intended usage of the habitation of your heart. You and I now are now a place where God is meant to reside and dwell. That's what Jesus says. And that's the reason why the Apostle Paul, for instance, says, I urge you, brothers, by the mercies of God to present your your whole selves, your bodies as living sacrifices. It's why he goes on to say, I urge you, brothers, to now walk worthy of the calling with which you've been called. See, there's an urgency there now to the way that we walk and the way that we pursue Christ. Why? Because he now is resident within us. It's why Paul goes on in Corinthians to talk about not uniting ourselves and our lives to the things of darkness. For what common cause does Christ have and the Spirit of God have with that which is darkness? These two things do not go together, brothers, he says. You see, there's an urgency to our sanctification because of this very truth right here. Let me illustrate it for you this way. This past week, I had had finished up some big projects around the house, and so as I'm apt to have to do, I then had to do another project called cleaning out my garage because it was filled with the detritus of life, toys and tools and garbage and trash and everything all mixed together, and it was... Friends, I'm telling you, such a huge task that it took me several days. And so after work, I just kind of chipped away at it in the evenings for several days until it was finally done. And I could breathe easy until my next project rolls around. (laughs) But by way of contrast, there was a night this week where there was a huge pile of dishes after dinner that had been created through some spectacular gourmet concoction that my family had compiled. How do you think it would have gone if I, as a professional dish doer, (laughs) had said, you know, honey, let's just, it's a big task. Let's chip away at these over the next couple of days. That's a non-starter, gentlemen. You don't, you would never say that. It's not going to work. Let me ask you, why is one of those approaches acceptable? The garage can take several days. The dish has got to be done right now. Obviously, my dwelling place is not in the garage, but we do live in the kitchen. And so the urgency of my priorities, it gets set accordingly. So it is with the work of the Spirit that has now been given. 
The fullness of God lives in, you could say, your kitchen. He dwells there in that place. And so there's an urgency to your pursuit of sanctification. C.S. Lewis puts it this way, and it's a very helpful quote. Listen here for a few moments. Imagine yourself as a living house, God coming in to rebuild that house. At first, perhaps, you can understand what he is doing. He's getting the drains right and stopping the leaks in the roof, and you, you knew that those jobs needed doing, and so you're not surprised when he does them. But presently, he starts knocking about the house in a way that just hurts abominably. What on earth is he up to? And the explanation is that he is building quite a different house from the ones that you had thoughts of. You thought you were going to be made into a decent little cottage, but he is building a palace, one fit for his own habitation and in which he will come and live for himself. Friends, that's the reason why Jesus' plan is a better plan. This is what he has enabled. He has established a better way for us to have a relationship to God. See, now rather than us striving to dwell with God, God has come and He now dwells with us. And that should change everything. That's the reason why this, Thaddeus, is a better plan. Because we now will come and make our dwelling place with you. We will be in you. And rather than you having to run after us, we have now come to you. And you know the fullness of our grace, the fullness of our presence, the fullness of our power, deployed in your life to make you a temple fit for our habitation. That's what Jesus says here. That's why his plan is better. That's reason number one. But here's reason number two. Not only is his plan going to provide for us a better way, it also brings to us a deeper truth. Look, if you don't have the Spirit of God within you, you have no hope of understanding the truth or getting it right. Just ask the disciples. Look at what they've done in this chapter. Better yet, actually, let's ask Jesus. Look with me at verse 25. What hope do you have of knowing the truth? If you do not have his spirit, Jesus says there, these things I have spoken. And it's a, a very much past tense kind of verb there. I have been telling you these things while I am still with you. You remember that in chapter 13, verse 7, the very first statement that Jesus makes to introduce this conversation, he says, I have many things to tell you that you will not now understand, but I'm telling you now so that when these things happen, you will believe. Jesus prefaced the whole conversation by saying, I know because you don't have the spirit, you can't get what I'm saying to you now, but you will. The day is coming. See, what he's trying to help these men understand here is that the reason God's plan is better is because having the Spirit of God inside of them is going to enable them to understand the truth to a degree that previously had been totally impossible. He says here in verse 25, I've been telling you these things, and yet you still do not understand. See, the disciples, they're, they're still stumbling around, misunderstanding, misapplying, mistaking Jesus, and that surely was not a reflection on the teacher. No, the teacher was perfect. Every single word Jesus has uttered in these chapters has been powerful, shot through with profound kinds of truth. No, their inability to understand, that is directly a reflection on the nature of the student. And that's the truth. 
here. See, the reason that they did not understand is because they could not understand. And that, my friends, is the point that Jesus is making here. The reason why his plan is better is because the human heart, apart from the illumination of God's Spirit, it is blind. It's not until the Spirit comes, enlivens, and illumines that now we're able to see. See, the disciples under the old way try as they might, failure after failure. In Jesus' new plan, the plan that he's revealing to him here, the, the Spirit of illumination, the Spirit of truth, the Helper, the Holy Spirit, what was he going to do for them? What is he going to do for us? Well, look at verse 26. Here's why it's better. This is the deeper truth. The Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, He will teach you all things. And how was the Holy Spirit going to teach them all things? By bringing to their remembrance all that Jesus had said. Now, friends, there is a key hidden there that we've got to make sure we understand. Jesus is pointing here specifically to the way by which His words would be captured to the way by which the New Testament would be produced. The New Testament, the Holy Scriptures, were written as the Spirit of God brought to the minds of the apostles all the words that Christ had been uttered. It was according to the power and inspiration of the Spirit's guidance that each of these men would proceed to pick up pens and put their thoughts and their memories to paper. And under that Spirit's influence, the result would then become the inspired, inerrant, very Word of God. The Word of God that you and I now hold in our own hands. And having produced that Word through the work of the Spirit by bringing back to their minds all the words of Jesus Christ, now the Spirit, the very same Spirit, uses those very same words of Christ to what? To teach us now all things. See, in the old way, pre-spirit, what reigned? Confusion and blindness. But now, because Jesus has left and sent His Spirit, now what is with us? Now there is clarity. There is power. There is understanding. Where once confusion reigned, just look at Peter and Thomas and Philip or Thaddeus. We now have the Word of God. But get this, we also in the Spirit have the capacity to understand and apply and know and live the Word of God. See, that's why this is not just a better way. It's a deeper truth. Jesus says, my plan is not off track. This is my plan, and it is better for you. See, the result is explained to us in 2 Timothy chapter 3, 16, where we're told that all Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for reproof and for teaching, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God might be complete, equipped for every good work. That is how the plan of God is better. He didn't just leave us, as we've been told, as though we were orphans. No, He and His Father have now come and taken up their dwelling place inside of us through the Spirit. And through the Spirit, we can hear the voice of Christ as we read the words of Christ. And now we, having the Spirit, can understand the truth of God even better than the apostles did when they were walking with Jesus. Friends, this has always been plan A. We have got a better way, God in us. And we have got a deeper truth, the Word of Christ available to us. But Jesus isn't done. He's going to give them a third reason why this plan is superior. He says you've got a superior life as well. 
Because in addition to me being with you and in you, in addition to me giving you my word so that you can understand and hear from me, now you've also got the peace of Christ ruling over you as well. And this is the superior kind of life. Look at verse 27. Peace, he says, I leave with you. This is why it's better. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. So let not your hearts be troubled. Neither let them be afraid. See, you look around, as we've already talked about this morning, and our world, it's got its own definition of peace. And it's lacking. It's wanting. Because it's always temporary, it always gets broken. I mean, just think, our, our president just flew 13,000 miles round trip to the other side of the world to seek to broker a peace. And even if he had done a Nobel Peace Prize worthy job, how long would that peace have lasted, I ask you? History tells us that it wouldn't last for much more than a decade, if that. See, man's peace, the peace that he produces for himself, it is always temporary and it always ends with the death of mankind. And then there's no peace with God. And so any kind of peace that the world gives is always going to be inferior and insufficient. But Jesus, by contrast, says, I've got a different kind of peace. I mean, to put this in perspective, some historians have estimated that over the past 3,400 years of recorded human history, there have been less than 268 years of cumulative peace. What does that mean? It means that for 92% of its existence, mankind has been at war with itself. Clearly, our world knows nothing about the nature of what true peace is. But here in this verse, the Prince of Peace shows up and he makes this offer now to those of us who know and love him. My peace I give to you. So that's why. Let not your hearts be troubled now, he goes on to say. That's the kind of life that Jesus is offering. True life means to be at peace with God. And that can only happen as you have the Spirit of God resident within you. As Paul says in Romans chapter 8, verse 6, the mind set on the Spirit, that's life and peace. And this is what Jesus is offering. And to demonstrate the depth and the permanence of this peace, there's a very critical and maybe a little bit complex clarification that, that Jesus makes here. Look with me there at the end of verse 28. Well, let's just look at all of verse 28. Jesus says, look, you heard me say to you, I'm going away. That's why you're scared. And I will come to you. But if you loved me, what's that mean? If you had my spirit in you, enabling you to love me, if you had the trueness of eternal life, then you would have heard these words of mine that I was going away and you, you would have rejoiced. Why? Because I am going to the Father and the Father is greater than I. Now let's make sure we understand this very clearly. Jesus is saying to these men, the peace that I just offered you in the verse just before, verse 27, it's not a peace that is being made between men. It's not a peace that is being made between Jesus incarnate in the form of a man and other men. This is not a peace that is grounded by humanity. Because as we've just talked about, every peace that is brokered by humans, what ends up happening with it? 
it falls apart and it breaks down. And so Jesus is saying to these men, you need to understand that this is not just me as a man offering you peace. No, this is me offering you peace with God. The one who in the fullness of his glory exists in a place that is greater than what you're seeing of me here and now in my form of humiliation as I have taken on human flesh. That's very important to recognize, see, because many different heretical groups have tried to say here, aha, see, Jesus, the Son, and the Father are not equal beings, but that's not correct. Many people have tried to say that the Son is lesser than the Father, or that the Son is subject to the Father in eternity, he's lesser than the Father, or that the the Son is deserving of less glory than the Father, the Father gets all the glory, the Son gets some glory, and the Spirit gets a little glory. Is that the way that the members of the Trinity interact with each other? No, clearly not. So what is Jesus saying here? He's saying, look, the peace that I'm offering to you here, the reason why you ought to be rejoicing is because this is not a temporary peace made from one man to another. No, this is a peace that is being offered to you with God himself in heaven and the fullness and the greatness of his glory. It is irrevocable. It is unchangeable. It is undoable. That's the kind of peace that I'm offering to you. See, Jesus isn't lesser than the Father. He's one with the Father. And that's what makes it possible for him to offer this kind of divine peace that produces joy and hope. And if he says, he says here, if you had understood me, if you had my spirit within you, if you had eternal life that I am offering you, if you had the superior life that I'm telling you I'm going to give you, you would be rejoicing at the fact that now my peace from God has been brought to you. And that, friends, that's the message of our gospel, is it not? I mean, Jesus is the one who is our peace today with God. Ephesians 2.14. Jesus is the one who rules our hearts so that we can have peace amidst a disordered world. Colossians 3.15. It's because of Him that we can rest with our hearts and minds guarded in that perfect peace. Philippians chapter 4, verse 7. And so in light of that, he gives a command here, stop being troubled and do not lack courage. See, he finishes the chapter where he began it. Let, gentlemen, your hearts not be troubled. Why, I ask you. Well, what has he just explained? Because you've got a better way. God in you. Because you've got a deeper truth, the word of Christ for you, and you've got a superior life, the peace of Christ ruling over you. Folks, what Jesus did for us, it wasn't a deviation from the plan of God, as Thaddeus and the rest of them were about to learn. This is not a lesser plan. At the cross, plan A did come together. And now the fruit of Christ's work, it has been offered and made available to us a better way, a deeper truth, and a superior life. And that is what Jesus goes on to explain here in the final verses of this chapter. And I'm here to tell you that the way he resolves all this and wraps it up is just a stunning kind of resolution. Look at what Jesus does here in these last few verses because they are just dynamite. Jesus looks around the room. He hears the four questions that have been thrown at him by the disciples. And he knows they're not going to get it until he goes and does what he came to do. 
That's why he started the conversation back in chapter 13, verse 7, with the disclaimer, what I am doing you do not understand now, but afterwards you will understand. And it's why he says here in verse 29, now look, I have told you before it takes place. I know you don't understand, but I've told you anyway, so that when it does take place, you might believe. Gentlemen, if you walk away from here with nothing else other than this, walk away from here with this. Believe. That's what he's telling them. That's his challenge to them. And why should they believe? Well, friend, because the time had come. Look at verse 30. No longer will I talk much with you. See, they couldn't understand anyway. And so Jesus says, no more talking. But knowing their natural inability, what does Jesus do? He, he continues on and listen to this now. He says, the ruler of this world has come. You'll remember that Satan had already entered into the heart of Judas Iscariot already. And at that very moment, the forces of evil led by Judas and the chief priests were marshalling themselves for the fight against Jesus. But just as Judas had arisen from the table with Satan inside of him for the fight, now too our champion is going to stand up from the table ready for the fight. And when he stands up from the table for the epic battle that's before him, here's what he has to say. The ruler of the world is coming even now, but he's got nothing on me. See, as, as one commentator says, the devil could make no claim against Jesus. How could he? The devil could not have a hold on Jesus because he could only have a hold on Jesus if there were a justifiable charge against Jesus. And since there wasn't, the devil could go on and do his worst. But he had nothing on Jesus that could possibly stick. And so Jesus, with his marvelous majesty and power, says, I do what I do, not because the devil is here for me, but I do what I do so that the world might know that I love my Father. Get up, gentlemen, rise. Time for talk is over. Let's go. You see, it was time for Jesus to get to it so that we could get from it. This is a let's roll moment. If I've ever heard one, Satan had nothing on him. He had come to do his father's will. Hell could do its worst, but the plan of God could not and would not be thwarted. And what was the will of his father? It was that we, those of us who love Christ, would receive all of the benefits that he has given to us in this chapter. That we would know God's plan, a better plan, so that we too might now know His love. And that's the reason why He says, get up and let's get to it. That's a mic drop if I've ever heard one. Crackling stuff where Jesus lights the fuse on God's plan A and says, let's go. See, this Jesus, your Jesus, what's He doing here? He's setting his face towards the cross in stone and he's not going to be distracted or dissuaded or denied. No, his day of victory, it had been set before him. First would come the shame, but then would come the glory and he would now go forth and do it so that the Father's will, your salvation, might be done. So that you and I, we, might now have life. See, my, my dear people, let's go back to where we started. When you're tempted to wonder, is God's plan on track? Look to Jesus, the King of all creation who rose up from the table to lay his life down for you. Just look at what he's done. Because he now lives, you too can live, we've been told in this chapter. Because he first loved you, now you can love him. Because he is one with the Father, now you can be one with him forever. Because he left, 
You can now have His Spirit and conquer your sin. If you would know the benefits of His life as He has taught them to us here, all you've got to do now is believe in God and believe in Jesus. That's what He has taught us in this chapter. And and if you believe in Jesus Christ, never again are you going to be tempted to wonder, are we on plan B, C, or is this actually plan D? No, friends, this is plan A. Satan's got nothing on King Jesus. And now you, you belong to him. And so you too, with him, are able to rise up and go from here with confidence and joy. And so it's in response to that knowledge that now I do ask you to rise up together and let's sing. Let not your hearts be troubled. Indeed, rejoice. It's a privilege for us now to prepare our hearts for a time of communion with our Savior. And I would refer your attention back to the text that we read at the beginning of our time together this morning. Jesus has become the guarantor of a better covenant. And have we not now seen what that means? It means that therefore, Hebrews 7 says, He is able to completely save those who come to God through Him because He lives forever to intercede for them. And therefore, such a high priest, He truly meets all of our needs, for He is one who is holy and blameless and pure and set apart from sinners, and and He's been exalted above the heavens. And unlike other high priests, He doesn't need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for His own sin and then for the sins of the people. No, He sacrificed His perfect life once for their sin when he offered himself. That's what he was going to do on that very night. And it's that very act of sacrifice that we have now gathered together to remember and rejoice. See, it's this work that we're gathered to remember this morning, just as Jesus commanded us to do. You know, the communion table, it was designed by Christ to do three things for us. It was designed to give us an opportunity to remember. What has Jesus done for me? He's made peace with God for you, friend. Do you remember that? And does it change the way that you live? That's the second thing communion does. It it should cause us to not just remember, but to reflect on what Jesus has done. Am I living like I now have the power to confess my sin, as though I've got the life of God's Spirit resident within me? Am I? And then finally, having answered that question, that yes, indeed, we do. It's meant to be a time of great rejoicing, knowing that you and I, We have got the way, the truth, and the life now resident within us, all because of the work of Jesus Christ. And so this morning, I'm going to ask the men to come forward and prepare to distribute the elements of our communion service to you. And I would encourage all of you to there, where you are in your chair, to commune with your God. Do all three of these things. Examine your life. Reflect. Are you living in the way that He has empowered you to live. If not, confess your sin. And then rejoice in Christ, remembering what He's done for you. And so let's take just a moment to reflect and worship quietly before the Lord. As the men play and the men distribute the elements, I would encourage you to spend time together as a church family, communing with the Lord in your hearts before Him. Colossians 1.21 tells us, You 
who once were formerly far off and hostile towards him doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled you in his body of flesh by his death to present you now holy and blameless and above reproach before the Father. We thank the Lord and rejoice that he has done that work in us, do we not? Amen. After he had taken and broken the bread, we're told that Jesus also took the cup likewise. And he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And friends, it is our joy to partake of this cup together, knowing that indeed that blood has purchased our redemption. And so let us partake and rejoice together as we do. Colossians 1.19 tells us again, For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Let's pray together. Our Father God, we do thank you for the great work that has been done on our behalf. Truly, you are good and mighty to be praised. Lord, we know because of Christ who you are. We know because of Christ what you've done. And now we are different. We are changed. We are transformed. We are rescued and we are ransomed. All because of the work of Jesus Christ who is our only Savior. He is our way, our truth, our life. He is a better way a deeper truth, a superior life. And now He is with us. He is in us. And we are His own. And for this, we rejoice, we remember, and we reflect. We pray all these things in Jesus' most precious name. Amen.